All right, I'm now sitting in my office and, uh, and we're going to be opening up the word together and, and asking the question, is Christ in a Christianity in, in a way that is, is asking, is Christ the center of my heart? Has Christ taken up residence in my heart? And I guess the subheading of, of our time together is, uh, is, is the abiding residence of Christ in the heart of the believer. But before we go any further, I'm just going to pray uh, for our time together and then we'll, we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of technology that allows us to connect and communicate uh, across oceans and continents, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you're the God that transcends creation uh, and you're, you're, the, you're the God that transcends distance. Um, but Lord, I pray that as I share something that you've laid on my heart here in Australia, uh, that this would be an encouragement, that this would be a blessing um, to my brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the planet. Uh, Lord, I thank you that we are one because, Jesus, you died for us and you brought us near. Uh, we, we're one uh, because of the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus. And that is the, the greatest union we can have with another human being. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. I do ask that you would speak to each of us individually as you address us collectively and corporately. But, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified and honored. May you speak through me, that may these words not be my words, but may they be your words and originate from your heart, not from my head, uh, but may they be a blessing as you work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there was a guy named Alec Materia, and, uh, and he was a British minister, and he had this phrase, and he would talk about this thing called the mischievous piece of paper. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase before, but the mischievous piece of paper is a is the small piece of paper in the center of your Bible. It's, just, it's at the center of my Bible too. Maybe not dead center, but off center. Some of you know what piece of paper I'm talking about. The mischievous little piece of paper is the piece of paper that divides the Old Testament from the New Testament. What that piece of paper does is it teaches us that, or tells us that there are two revelations from God to humanity, but in reality, God has one message of redemption, one gospel, one good news for humanity into uh, that, that transcends time and, 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 and transcends geography. So the mysterious little piece of paper separates into two what God intended to be one. There is this tension, though. Uh, God relates to humanity, humanity differently in the Old Testament compared to how he relates to, the, to believers and to, and to people and humanity in the New Testament. But while he's relating to humanity differently, there is one message of redemption, one message of, of salvation and restoration. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his own son. The key there. God's speaking. When God speaks, he's addressing humanity. He's proclaiming to all of his creation that he is the creator God who's designed us as humanity to live in union and live in the kingdom that he is so that we would be restored to the life that he intended us to inhabit. What we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Old Testament 
look at a significant moment in the history of Israel and, and, and break it down. And, and that will give us a great picture foreshadowing what Jesus would ultimately do for, do for us on the cross. Now, we can look at almost anywhere in the Old Testament, and, and, and that would clearly give us a picture of the cross. People say that there's this crimson thread that weaves through Scripture, leading us to Jesus, leading us to the cross. Other people say you can see Jesus on every page of the Bible. And I believe that's absolutely true. But this particular account is one of the clearest, succinct, uh, inclusive messages in the Old Testament that portrays what Jesus has fully done for us in the Gospels. So we're looking at um, uh, Solomon, King Solomon. After King David had died, his son Solomon took up the throne and began the job of building the temple. Now, you'll remember that King David wasn't allowed to. So his son Solomon, when he took the throne and was established as king, he took up the job. After seven long years of building, and you can look at this in 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, 38, the temple was completed and they dedicated that temple to God. God had an, an, an inspired and equipped and indwelt. Uh, individual craftsmen to build this beautiful structure. And then it comes, this building's finally complete. It's beautiful. It's ornate. There's gold inlay. There's, uh, there's uh, if, you, if you look at the demonst- uh, if you look at the description of the temple, it's phenomenal. This big sea and bulls and, and pomegranates and grapes and all made of gold and laid, inlaid. And then the cedars, it's just phenomenal structure. So after this building has been completed after seven long years, I'm picking this up in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6. It says, King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Can you imagine that? Standing at the altar before the new temple and, and there's myriads, fields full of sheep and cattle and sacrificial animals that are being brought, the the noise, the dust, the chaos. It's an insane moment. Then after they had offered those blood sacrifices to dedicate, to purify the temple, uh, we see the Ark of the Covenant brought into the holy place. And I'm reading this from 1 Kings 8. And you see Chronicles and Kings overlay a lot in these accounts. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13 says, When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Now, Solomon's recognizing the beauty of the structure that God enabled him to put together, but he's not lost in the beauty there. He's not lost in the in the craftsmanship because we'll see after he prays, he reflects like this in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, talking about the spiritual domain, even the highest heaven cannot contain, cannot, uh, cannot bind you. How much less this temple I have built. And this is the beauty of the incarnation, the God of the universe coming lowly, coming to dwell in something so small, so fragile. The God of the universe came down incarnate to tabernacle, to tent 
as human among us. Then we see this in 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. What we see here is five clear steps in this process of dedication of of, of temple establishment, which is phenomenal. And you're going to, if you've been in church for very long or not long at all, you'll probably pick up where this is, what this is talking about. Number one, the blood is spilled. Sacrificial blood is spilled. Number two, the presence of God enters the temple. On the basis of that, this is not like a, a three days later, the next thing happened, but on the basis of the presence of God inhabiting the temple, we see in number three, the glory of, of God fills the temple. So there's this inhabit, God inhabits and then he consumes. Then fourthly, fire comes down. And fifthly, God's people worship. Here we're seeing this crimson thread that we talked about leading to this, the, the, the significant, the, the, the crux moment of humanity. The crux moment of humanity, the pivot point of all creation is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing here is this transcendent message of redemption that transcends the mischievous piece of paper. Old Testament, all of this is preparation for. There's a greater sacrifice coming. There is a greater king coming. There is a greater dwelling place coming. There is an ultimate perfect blood offering coming and that was established thousands of years prior but that 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 wasn't a separate revelation it's all in preparation for so what we see here is the holy spirit taking up residence within the temple when i uh Worked uh, for Cape Henry the first time. Jazz and I got married, and uh, and and we led what we call the Aussie road trip. Some of you uh, who've, who've, who've uh, who got to know us over in Canada know what the Aussie road trip is. It's essentially um, a six-week outreach trip for uh, a small team of people to serve and travel up and down or around Australia, whether outback or along the beaches, just to serve in different churches. So we have a one week here, then we have four one week placement locations where we just get billeted out within a church community, uh, a church that we've built a relationship with, and we serve that church, that community, whether it's cleaning toilets and mowing lawns for a week or running youth programs and running worship services or street evangelism or whatever. And so we do that for a week and then we pack up, we move along, we we plan again, we we serve in it for a week and we pack, we do that four times and then we ultimately return back to Cape Henry uh, and then we debrief and R&R and pray and kind of recover because it's pretty full on. Living in other people's homes, four different homes for over a month is pretty full on. That's actually how Jazz and I met. Uh, and Ross and Tanya will uh, remember fondly uh, hearing about this Callum guy in Australia. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but when Jazz and I got married, uh, we led a team together and that was kind of new in our marriage. So it's kind of like baptism of fire, jumping from honeymoon into leading the road trip. And, uh, and, but we learned pretty quickly that we needed to take time to be with each other. We need to take time away from the craziness, 
kind of get away from the, from the crowd, spend time with Jesus, spend time with each other. And on one of these days on a Saturday, we, uh, we thought it'd be kind of fun to go inspect some houses. We're on the road trip. We're up in Queensland, uh, in, in north of Brisbane on the Sunshine Coast. And we thought, hey, it'd be kind of fun just to spend a Saturday just to look at a bunch of open homes. So we Googled a bunch of open homes that were happening and we looked around as though we were interested buyers. We were not even planning anything, but we're just walking around. And actually, we found one house that we actually fell in love with. It was beautiful. It was, it was not crazy. It was a small t- townhouse, um, reasonably priced. And so we, we prayed about it. Long story short, we put an offer on, and, and, the, and the, they actually accepted our offer. Then we had to go and find some money, talk to the bank, and figure that all out. That's a whole other crazy situation. But after being able to, after we signed the contract, we then paid the, pay, the, we paid the price. We bought this house. After we had bought the house, a little while later, we actually moved, we packed up our things from, we, we, we finished our time up in Cape and Ray, and we, we packed up our things and we moved and we moved into the home. And, and that simple kind of four-step journey helps me to remember what it was like for, uh, for, 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 for the Holy Spirit to move in. What we're seeing here is a four-part journey that parallels in a lot of ways the journey of God's ultimate narrative of redemption. First off, it began with an inspection. God, in the beginning, in Genesis, way back when, casting one back, God created everything. Then he glanced, he looked at what he had made. In Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So there was an inspection. It's kind of like Jazzle and I looking at this home, looking at this house, and be like, this is beautiful. I would love to live here. And so God inspected humanity all of creation, but humanity, and saw that what he had made was very good. Then, second, a contract was signed, was drawn up and signed. And, and we can see this laid out for us in Genesis 15, kind of an obscure passage, uh, but one that's actually rich with imagery and, 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 and Christ, uh, Christocentric foreshadowing, a bunch of verbiage, but talking about Jesus, really. Genesis 15, and if you have your Bibles in front of you, please uh, journey with me. Genesis 15, 9 through 18 says, So the Lord said to him, Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram uh, brought all these to him, cut them in two, kind of gory, I know, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But, it's not the end of the story, I will punish that nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. We can see that beautifully through Exodus. God restoring through via Moses, uh, restoring the Israelites and building a nation. This is kind of like this conception of a nation here. And then, not to make you queasy, but the, the, the Israelites, uh, the Hebrews in Egypt, that's kind of like this darkness and that this nation was being developed as a conception. But then there was kind of like this womb experience, kind of intense. And, then, and within the womb, within Egypt, this nation is being built, knitted together. And then when it came time there was a spilling of blood and spilling of water. It's phenomenal. Through the, the Red Sea and through the blood of the uh, Passover sacrifice, 
through the, the breaking of water and breaking of blood, this nation was born. I know it's pretty, probably a bit too close to home for some, but it's a beautiful picture of this nation being born. And they actually went, they, they, were, uh, they, they left Egypt with great possessions because they effectively raided uh, the, the, the Egyptians because the Egyptians just gave them their wealth. It's a phenomenal story, phenomenal account. Verse 15, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun set and darkness had fallen, get this, really weird, but get this, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant or a contract with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. Now, this is kind of a weird, obscure narrative, but what's happening here is an ancient form of writing up a contract, writing up a covenant. What they would do is they would bring these animals, they would cut them in half and lay each side down a bit of a pathway, a, 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 creating a bit of a pathway. What they would do then is as they were making a business contract or a transaction, they would, two members of the contract would walk through and effectively say, if I or either of us don't live up to our end of the bargain, our end of the contract, the consequence will be, may I be like these. You know you can trust me because if I don't live up my end of the bargain, I'm going to, you can make me like these carcass, these, these dead animals. And so that was an ancient form of writing up a contract. Phenomenal. And, uh, but what we see here in verse 17, Abram, God's making a covenant with Abram, but Abram's not the one to pass through. Abram's watching. And so we see this fire pot and this torch passing through the carcasses. Now, this is symbolic of the presence of God and the, and the Spirit of God making a contract on Abram's behalf. This is beautiful, deep imagery. So the contract was signed, was drawn and signed up. Uh, that God is effectively saying, Abram, I'm making a contract with you. Even if you don't in, live up to your end of the bargain, even if you or your descendants fall into sin, I will pay the price. I will give you a new land. I'll give you a new covenant, a, a, a promise. Um, and I will make you a, a great, beautiful nation, even if you didn't, don't live up to your end of the bargain. Great, beautiful. Thirdly, the payment was made. Like buying the house, there had to be the payment. Somebody had to cover the expense, the cost of the purchase. And this is clearly, obviously fulfilled in the Gospels. Luke 23 uh, reads like this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. I'm just going to pause there. Remember the animals that were cut in half and laid either side? And, and, and God in the middle is saying, may I be like these if you don't end, live up to your end of the bargain? So humanity has fallen into sin. Humanity is broken. Humanity is corrupt. And Jesus is crucified like one of these, like a sinner, like a criminal. Jesus is, 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 is punished like a criminal, even though he's innocent, on our behalf. What a phenomenal fulfillment. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land. We see that darkness again until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when Ed said this, he breathed his last. The blood, the perfect, innocent blood of Jesus was the, was the payment cost that, G, that, that God paid on our behalf to purchase the, inhabit, the, the dwelling place, to purchase the house like Jazz and I had to pay. Lastly, and what I'd love us to reflect on, Finally, God, we, Jazz and I moved into the house and God moved into his new temple. We see this in Acts 2. The life and the power of God up till this moment had always been temporary and external uh, until now where the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit now moves in to take up residence in his new dwelling place. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a Blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, fire coming down. We see tongues of fire uh, come and, and they separate and came to rest on each of them. Not the one altar, but each of them. Uh, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God has now taken up residence within the heart of man. 1 Corinthians 3.16, and I love the 3.16s, John 3.16, uh, etc. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know? Aren't you aware? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The point is this. I don't, it's really important that we don't allow the mischievous piece of paper fool us uh, into thinking that God is creating something new. It's a plan B. No, this has always been God's, God's initial plan of redemption. From the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, the, 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 the animal skin covered their shame. The, the death of an innocent covered the, blood, covered the shame and the guilt of the guilty. And, and same again, we're seeing the blood of the innocent cover the shame and the guilt and making new the, the, what is guilty. And, and the guilty is you, and, you and, and me. But what I want us to see is that God had always intended to take up residence within the, the, the purchased property, the purchased temple. The first te- Solomon's temple was, was, was is, is inhabited on the back of the blood of sacrificed animals, but greater blood was to come. And now the Spirit of God himself has taken up residence within the hearts, the temple of, of, of humanity, which has been purified and consecrated the blood, by the blood, not of animals, but, the, by, but by the blood of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says, Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And I love this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You have been purchased. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are now slaves to righteousness. The Holy Spirit is in you. We as Christians, we talk about Christ in us. We talk about the the, uh, Pentecost, which is, but what can happen is that we can forget how significant that is. What if I was to put it to you this way? There is a God inside of you. When you start to use phrases like that, it becomes a little bit more close to home. It's not just a God. It's the God. The God of the universe is inside of you. You're thinking, in, in what part of me? Inside of your spirit. As a human, you're made up of a trichotomy. I'm not going to go there, body, soul, spirit. But there is a, the, the, the very God of the universe 
How the, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built. How much less my heart. How much less who I am than the magnificent temple. But what makes this dwelling place consecrated, purified, prepared is not the blood of animals, but better blood, the blood of Jesus. When I, uh, as you guys get to know me, or uh, for those who do know me, um, you'll know that I have a shocking memory. Um, I have to carry around a planner, and uh, and that is because my life gets crazy if I don't re- take a plan with me. Otherwise, things get dropped, commitments get double committed. It's just really, really bad. But I, I have a terrible memory. Uh, but having a having a bad memory is a blessing and a curse when it comes to marriage. Jazz, you, you, you met or saw, saw earlier. Um, she, she, being married to, to Jazz, having a bad memory myself is a blessing and a curse. It's a curse when it comes to uh, being given a shopping list and being told to go to the grocery store and pick up some stuff. Without a list, if I'm just told to pick this up, this up, this up, I get there, I forget. It's a dumpster fire. But uh, it's a blessing if I'm trying to live out a passage like uh, Colossians 13, the great love passage. Love is patient, love is kind, that, that, that. It keeps no record of wrongs. Having a forgetful memory, brilliant. I don't remember what happened yesterday. Uh, if, you, if you hurt me, ah, whatever, I can't remember anyway. So having a bad memory is, is, is a blessing and a curse. But the devil, the devil has a fantastic memory, doesn't he? The devil has this way of remembering and bringing up our past sins. But the thing is that the devil is not the only one who brings up our past. We have this phrase, um, uh, um, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> I love that. But actually, God also brings up our past. In uh, Deuteronomy, uh, we see this phrase in Deuteronomy 5, talking to the Israelites, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Sounds kind of cruel at first. If Jasmine reminded me of my sin, if Jasmine reminded me of my past mistakes of, of the things that I did wrong the other day and, and held those over me and keep reminding me of my mistakes, that would, have, that would eventually crush me or break me. But God is reminding the Israelites that they were once slaves. And it sounds almost cruel, but he does this for a very important reason. He does this because he is emphasizing the word were. Deuteronomy 5.15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. It's past tense. You are no longer slaves to the things of this world. You have been set free by the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus. Don't you dare forget that you are not slaves anymore. Don't you dare forget that you are free. We cannot afford to forget this. Four times in Deuteronomy, God reminds the Israelites that they were slaves in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 15 verse 12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Deuteronomy 16.12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Deuteronomy 24.22, you getting it? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Even Paul in Romans picks this up. Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, not from your head or from your behavior. you've, You've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves 
to righteousness. Friends, because of what Jesus has done for us on the altar, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we are no longer slaves. Throughout the, 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 the entire narrative of Scripture from beginning to end, God is calling out, is proclaiming, is preaching to His creation one message from Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to save you. If He has saved you, you are no longer slaves. We've been, um, I've been reflecting on Sabbath um, recently and talking about reflecting on rest and, 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 and the penny drop moment happened for me when I read one of these Deuteronomy passages about being slaves um, in context. And I intentionally left it out because I wanted to, wanted to kind of highlight it here. Deuteronomy 15, uh, 5.15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that, that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Sabbath now is, is, is no longer a, a mosaic Sabbath, which is talking about observing, going back to observe the law. However, you and I can rest. You and I can enjoy a, 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 a Sabbath, a, a messianic Sabbath, because we were slaves, because we're no longer slaves. You see, slaves, especially the Israelites in Egypt, slaves don't get rest. Slaves are driven by slave drivers. There's no rest for being a slave. There's no break. It's constant barrage of instruction and rule following and, and have-tos and must-nots. And it's a constant effort of, of energy expenditure. Slaves weren't allowed to rest. Rest was reserved for the family. Rest was reserved for the free. So because you and I have been set free, and because you and I have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we get to rest. We're supposed to rest. Some of us are addicted to work. Some of us are addicted to ministry, and we're not taking time to rest. But because we were slaves, now it's time to rest. Because the God of the universe is holding the world together, not me. I am not God. I can take time to reflect and, and, and rest in the true king of the universe because he's the one holding it all together. In fact, I would probably go as far as to say this, your Sabbath, your rest, whatever that looks like for you, your rest will be one of the best sermons you and I will ever preach because your rest in this life proclaims to the world around you that you are no longer a slave and that you, as a son and daughter, you can rest in the God who set you free. That is a fantastic sermon that we preach every time we take rest in God of the universe. So that's a reflection on the singular narrative of Scripture, that God is calling sinners to redemption, calling the broken to family. And so I, I love that it's not about how much we do for God. It's not how much we, how, what the ladder, the, the, the ladder of, of religiosity, trying to do these spiritual practices to get to heaven. But God has come down, has inhabited uh, the, the, the greater temple, which is your heart, only because Jesus first consecrated it, purified it, dedicated it by his perfect blood. It is the death of Jesus 
that prepares the way for the Holy Spirit to take up residence back in the hearts of humanity. The creator taking up residence within the creature. We are invited to rest in the God who holds the universe together because we are no longer slaves. It's been so good to share uh, and, and, and reflect on the word of God with you. And, uh, and I hope there's been a real blessing and encouragement. Um, thank you so much for your love and your support. I would love to pray for you. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'm going to hand it over to the, to the team. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we're so... It, it, I don't want this to become just a, uh, an everyday thank you for, for dying for me, Jesus, and move on. Lord Jesus, may you land this in our heart. May we reflect as we once did the beauty and the power of the sacrifice that was made for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have prepared the way to take up residence within us. Lord, I thank you that you give us new life, the resurrection life because of that first death. Lord, I thank you for the rest that we can find in you because the fact that we're no longer slaves. Many of us were slaves. We were uh, broken. We were um, Uh, addicted to the patterns of this world, but because of what you have done and what you continue to do, Jesus, we are no longer slaves and we will never be slaves again. And because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, we can rest. We can take time and reflect on the beauty and the glory that is you. Thank you so much for College Drive Church. I pray a blessing over everybody there. May their hearts be warm towards you this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen.